0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Morning, guys. Today, uh, we're talking about a tale of heroes and villains, all right? Uh, And in order to talk about that, we first have to talk about the TV show that came out in 2004, before some of you were even born, called Lost, all right? Uh, the greatest TV show that possibly has ever been created. Uh, How do I describe it? I would say no television show ever made before or since has had such a breadth, such a complexity, such philosophical and scientific, or science fiction exploration. It is simply put unparalleled in the Western canon as far as TV shows go. But basically, to give it a laughably reduced explanation, a plane lands on an island, weird stuff goes down, people get eaten by a monster made of smoke, there's a polar bear and a convict and a washed up rock star that falls in love with an Australian pregnant lady, and there's this button that they have to press or else the world's going to end. Okay, so now you're, you're caught up completely. But basically, uh, to make matters worse, there are these other people on the island, we're going to call them the Others. Uh, and the Others start kidnapping and killing people, they show up out of nowhere, uh, and they're not good, it's crazy. A lot of stuff goes down, you finally come to this moment where there's one of these people on the plane, uh, or from the plane, named Michael, and he's standing face to face with one of the others, and he is uh, saying, who are you people, why are you doing this to us? And Michael says that to Benjamin, and Benjamin replies, we're the good guys, Michael intense all right obviously none of you guys have seen the show or else you'd be like whoa oh my gosh all right uh it's an amazing show you should definitely watch it but even more than that uh it's crushing because you realize that the wicked and bad people that have been causing all of this chaos this entire time actually think that they are the good guys they think that they are like endowed with righteous purpose and they have like a holy meaning behind everything that they're doing and it really makes me think uh whenever i watch back through lost which honestly I mean, I'm on a nearly once a year rotation here. It's kind of sad at this point, really. I mean, and it's a heavy lift. Six seasons, 40 minute episodes, it's a big deal. But whenever I watch that, I think about that, like the weirdness of the way that you can like think that you're the good guy in the story. And so today, like, I just want to like dive into that a little bit and talk about good guys and bad guys that are in this particular story. Uh, And you've probably been in this situation before yourself where you've had to like take a second and ask yourself, like, wait a second, like, I might be the bad guy in this story. I might not actually be the hero of this story. And if you've never asked yourself that question, you're probably the bad guy in a lot of people's stories, all right? If you've never had that moment of self-reflection, then like, yeah, a lot of people are telling stories where you don't come out shining bright. But... Uh, you should probably ask yourself that very often. And today, it's going to give us a chance in the story to actually take a look and say, like, which side are we on? Who are we? Who do we want to be? Today, it is a tale of heroes and villains. Today, our char- our stories involve some bad characters, some kind of bad ones, one really bad one, and one really good one. Okay. So first. The chief priests were kind of bad in plotting to kill Jesus, right? But even worse, I think, in this story today is the traitor Judas. Uh, He actually does not come out good in this story, as you might imagine. He's the bad guy. But as for good characters, it really comes down to the woman who anointed Jesus. She is the hero in this story. John actually tells the same story as this one in his gospel, and he clarifies some details for us. He's the one who actually names the woman Mary, and he says that she is there with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. You might remember them from the story where uh, Martha was running around getting everything prepared, but Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him. So as as you might expect in this story, Martha is serving, Lazarus is reclining at the table, and Mary was the one with the flask of very expensive ointment. She is the hero of our little tale today. And in John's telling, also, he lets us know that it's Judas, not the disciples collectively, that are complaining about the cost of the perfume. Okay, so he has basically the same complaint, but he attributes it not to all twelve, but solely to Judas. And he says this is why, we actually see this in verse 6 of John. In John's gospel, he says, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, Just as a recap, what do we know about Judas? You've probably heard the name Judas before, even if you've never been to church before, even if this was your very first day, you probably know that guy. His name is associated with traitors everywhere, uh, probably the most famous like uh, traitorial act of all time. Here's what we know about him. He was treasurer for the disciples. He stole money from the collective purse. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and then he killed himself out of grief. All right, so that's the bad guy. Hopefully, none of you guys are team bad guys. I know anti-hero and everything is a cool thing now, but like, I don't think that counts for Judas. All right, like, I don't think that's what we're talking about. Now, uh, this is a little bit confusing. Let's switch him to. Let's switch over to Mary. This is not uh, Jesus's mom or Mary Magdalene, or for whatever reason, every almost every woman named in the Gospels, all right? I don't know what was happening, you know, like how a name gets popular every once in a while. I guess that was a Mary season or something. Literally, and I didn't know this, uh, I guess I haven't looked about it, there are six different women in the New Testament named Mary. That's crazy, all right? So this Mary that we're talking about is not Mary Magdalene. Uh, She often gets confused, and there's like an ancient tradition that just merged these two Marys, and so they assumed uh, that this Mary was Mary Magdalene, but that's not the case if you read through Scripture diligently. What do we know about this Mary? She neglected her household duties to listen to Jesus, so that's the other big story that we see with Mary and Martha. She moved moved Jesus deeply with her tears for Lazarus, all right? Remember? Uh, The famous, like, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. uh, That was at a response to what this Mary uh, was showing Jesus about Lazarus being dead. She saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And now here in our story today, she anointed Jesus before his death, okay? So already better to be Mary than Judas, I think. She sets a model here for something that Jesus says will be remembered wherever this gospel is told. Which is like the most amazing thing you could possibly have said about you, I think, in the New Testament. And it's crazy here uh, that that actually happens. I'm going to lean into why that's crazy in just a second. But here's what she actually did. This is verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. All right, so we have to ask, why is this so crazy? First off, because it was very costly. Like a year's wages, this ointment. A year long, you would work... And then uh, that's how much this uh, ointment would actually cost. And with these jars, uh, the ball company had not been invented yet, so there were no screw jars, right? You'd literally have to break the top off of this alabaster jar and dump out all of the ointment. So just imagine, all right, if you just saved up for an entire year, I know it's tax season, so like you can probably calculate your yearly salary. I think it's like box 4A if you've recently done your taxes, right? But like uh, imagine you put all of that into one jar of perfume, cracked open the bottle, and just dumped it out on some guy's head. That's what's happening here. There's also some cross-cultural craziness that's happening here. Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper is what Matthew tells us, either... This was a leper that Jesus had healed, who, was, who then was able to get this house, or this was a way that Jesus and his disciples were so crazy countercultural that they were like hanging out with everyone. Because back in these times, lepers were people that you stayed very far away from. The solution to like stopping the spread of leprosy around the world back then was just to make them social outcasts to where you wouldn't even have a conversation with one. And so Jesus here is showing up and hanging out in someone named Simon the leper's house. Then Jesus, this dirty, homeless guy, gets covered in the oil that would normally be reserved for kings. And this was his second time to receive such a gift. Because this oil, uh, you may call it spikenard, or you may recognize its other name, which is myrrh. Okay, so this is the second time that Jesus actually received this. You remember that from the Christmas story, right? The uh, wise men show up, they have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Anyway, so this is the second time to get that. Secondly, this was a big deal because this woman simply gets it in a way that the disciples do not yet. Okay? If you've been following along with us in Matthew, you know that a few times already Jesus has been like, Hey, uh, I'm going to die. And the disciples are like, ah, Jesus, you're crazy. Right? And they're like, No, no, that'll never happen. That can't happen. Jesus, you heal other people. You bring other people back from the dead. Surely you're not going to die. But here we see a woman who actually gets it. Some have even suggested that this story was meant to show that only Mary and Judas realized that Jesus was actually going to die, and they responded to it in two different ways. Judas is like, this guy's going to die, I might as well make a little money off of this. I might as well sell him out, and then I can get 30 pieces of silver, and at least my life will be better from having wasted all this time following this guy around. Mary reacts completely differently. Jesus also always had a radical seat at the table for women in a society that often belittled, excluded, and mistreated them. Interestingly enough, women were the first to announce his resurrection from the tomb. A woman, his mom, was the first to know that he was even on his way, that he was coming. And now we see a picture of a woman being the first to help him prepare for his death. None of the men did this. And this myrrh was very often used as like a, a, an addition to the burial treatment of someone so that they would not be, you know, smelling of death as they were going through the burial process. And so Mary here is picking up on the fact that something is about to happen to Jesus, and she is the one not only anointing him and preparing him, which there's all kind of like religious significance to anointing someone, but also just the very act of preparing someone for death. She's kind of like announcing it here for everyone else. I mean, think about this. This was days before his death. There's no showers back then, right? So, like, he would not have even, like, really completely cleaned himself, which means that when the crown of thorns was being pushed on his head and blood was dripping down, it was mixing with this myrrh. Like, this was the way that he was smelling as he's standing before Pilate. This is the, like, can you imagine just even the mixture of the smells of this strong and powerful oil that is there and making him smell sweet as if prepared for death as he is being walked to the cross. If you want to talk about bright sadness as we're talking about all of Lent, put yourself in Mary's sandals right now. This is that confusing feeling of having joy and grief mingled at the same time. She is here announcing and proclaiming his death, but he is the greatest man that she has ever met. He is the man that raised her brother from the dead, and now he is willingly walking towards his own death, which is going to accomplish the work that he wanted to achieve, and yet you are the one who gets to anoint him before it. She pours the oil over him. John's account even tells us that she wipes it with her hair on his feet. Modern readers might even be tempted to call this moment intimate or sensual, but I think that's only because we have tasted so little of love as to think that that is actually the height of it. No, this is actually the pinnacle of love. This is perfection. This is creator and creation living as they were meant to live. This is true worship. This is every atom of Mary's body and every corner of her soul doing exactly what they were made to do. This was a king being recognized in his rightful place, full of mercy and justice and beauty and power, which leads him to say, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, back to heroes and villains. Who's the hero of this story? Clearly Mary. Who's the villain? Judas. Nobody wants to be a Judas, right? Judas' role was to betray Jesus to become the most famous of traitors. And I know you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, surely, surely that is not me. But I wanted to just recognize, and I don't want to camp out on this too long, that there's not really like an in-between relationship with Jesus. Right? Either rejecting him or you are accepting and embracing him. There's not sort of a, like, ah, Jesus is cool, whatever. So if you're, like, on the fence about how you feel about Jesus, you're drifting much, much closer to the Judas option than you are to the Mary. Either you can accept Jesus and worship him as king and submit your life to him, or you can reject him. Those are the only two options. Now, I imagine most of us sitting in this room right now are thinking to myself, like, I want to be a Mary. What does that look like? Here's a few observations that tell us about worship as we see it here through Mary. What she was doing here, I think, was the very pinnacle of what it means to be a worshiper, w- of what it means to worship in general. And when I use that word, I don't mean like uh, just that we show up here on a Sunday morning and we stand and sing. That is one form of worship, that is not all of worship. In fact, uh, the word worship comes from worthship. so you're sort of like showing someone their worth in what you're doing. Uh, and you can do that in lots of different ways. Uh, so what I want to give you today are just three observations from this story that I think can shape the way that we come to Jesus so that we might make our lives look a little bit more like Mary's. The first is that worship is costly. The jar of myrrh that she spilled would have cost 300 denarii or about one year's wages, as I've already talked about. I want you just to imagine taking one year's worth of money, converting it into Chanel number no. 5 or Axe body spray or whatever you're into, and just dumping it out. Like, that would be a crazy, crazy experience that I can't even imagine. And I believe it reminds us that true worship should actually cost you something, which is ironic because we've come to believe, like, kind of the opposite, right? Like, the true worship should gain you something. We've come to believe that true worship should result in a feeling in us. Like, have you ever thought about that? With a good and bad worship service, how do you define what that is? It usually is, like, I felt really good after I left, right? Or, like, that was a powerful feeling in me. This really is like kind of peak selfishness when you think about what we're doing in a worship gathering. Like God does meet us in our place of worship, and it's a kindness and a blessing and a grace from him when we're able to feel his presence. That moment become but the moment that that becomes the reason why we worship, we've like missed the boat entirely. Like, if we're just worshiping to get some sort of feeling from God, we're kind of now like court jesters, you know, like out there like dancing and doing a little show so that hopefully the master like flips us a coin or something like that. That's not real worship. No, instead of looking for a benefit from worship, we ought to be wondering what the cost is of worship. True worship is costly. Cheap worship is just a form of selfishness, and that actually becomes a form of idolatry. Such cheap worship becomes a worship of self. If you're only worshiping so that you can get something from God, who are you really worshiping? Cheap worship, I believe, is built on cheap grace. It grossly misunderstands the king that we worship and how much this grace cost him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and this is kind of a long quote, so you guys can follow along on the screen, just sort of hold on. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it costs costs God the life of his son, Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And it is this costly grace that causes us to worship fully. In true and costly worship, you bring your time and your heart, and your energy, and your mind, and everything that you are, and everything that you have, and you lay them at the feet of Jesus. And if he blesses you with a feeling of his presence, then praise God. And if you walk away feeling as though you have given up something, feeling as though if you have less than you had before you started worshiping him, then praise God, because we worship him not because he demands it, but because he deserves it. You'll notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't have to tell anyone to worship him. He doesn't tell Mary to come and bring this ointment. She brings it of her own volition. Apparently, she was so well attuned in her heart to his that she perceived his imminent death and was moved to action. Now, really don't want to conflate here what we do on Sunday morning with worship of Jesus. I think we try to create an environment where you can uh, worship Jesus. We facilitate a time of worship for you, However, uh, that's not all that worship is. And in fact, if this is the only worship of Jesus that you're doing all week, you're probably missing out on a lot. It isn't enough. And I want to be clear, God doesn't demand that you like show up here on Sunday just the way that Jesus doesn't demand uh, that Mary dump all of the ointment on him. Now, you could draw some parallels to, like, a healthy Sabbath, show that the early church gathered once a week, and I would say it's really a good thing, but there's no clear demand of just, hey, you should sit with other believers for, like, an hour and 15 minutes in a weird apartment building basement and, you know, drink some decent coffee out of cool mugs. There's not a command that you would see anywhere like that, right? But here is why you should, because Jesus deserves it. Not because he demands it, but because he deserves it. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, seen a celebrity up close. Uh, I remember one time, I've probably told this story before because it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I, uh, I saw G- John Goodman come out of his house in his boxers one time. Uh, it was just the most amazing thing. We're in New Orleans, we're walking around. I knew it was his house, all right? I wasn't doing anything weird. I just, like, happened to be walking there, all right? And uh, he comes out, and he's wearing no shoes, just white T-shirt boxers. He kind of likes, you know kind of hobbles out, um, and he's like looking for the paper, the mail to come, or something like that. I'm across the street, and I'm frozen. I'm dead, right? Like, I cannot do anything. I am just staring at, uh, you know, the Cyclops from O Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, Walter from The Big Lebowski, and of course, Sarah's favorite, Sully from Monsters, Inc., for some reason. That was a different kind of thing, right? He didn't say anything, so it's kind of tough to make that leap, but she was still excited, nonetheless. Uh, Everybody I was with was just completely frozen and I kind of like do this like half wave thing and like I don't know what to do because I'm like, ah, I I love this guy. He's amazing. I also don't want to bother him. I don't want to be that guy. It was a weird experience and uh, he basically pretended not to see us. So, uh, and then I wet my pants and we all went home, right? Uh, It was a great day, best day of my life. I say all of this to say, like, there was nothing that I could do other than, like, try and show some sort of, like, paltry way of, like, hey, I like the way that you act in movies, you know, like, with my, like, goofy, like, wave thing. And I didn't do that because he wanted it. I don't think he did want it, right? Like, he didn't want me there. I did it because he deserves it. This is John freaking Goodman that we're talking about here. I don't know if any of you guys are fans at all of his work, right? Maybe even all the way back to Roseanne. Back in the day, I mean this guy has been through it all, all right? He deserves it. So if he deserves it, how much more so does the king of the universe deserve your praise? Like it's kinda sad how much respect we'll give to celebrities and ball players and musicians, and then we treat God as if he is this like ethereal thing that doesn't matter a lot. And I know that's like kind of like a trite and cliched pastor thing to say, you know, like, Oh, you'll stand at the Super Bowl, but you won't stand up for Jesus, right? Like That's stupid. That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to just, like, actually, like, think of the way in which you would respond if you saw the greatest celebrity, like, right here in front of you. And now think about the weird way that we've just become all too comfortable with God. Right? Like, I don't like, you know, when I see Sarah from across the street, I don't, like, half wave and wet my pants like I do with John Goodman. There's, like, a rarity there, I guess. But at the end of the day, do I not need to be showing her as regularly and as often as I possibly can that I value her, that I love her, that she means the most to me? How much more so is that true for God? In fact, it is his access that he allows us to have to him that makes us too comfortable with him in some ways. Like the fact that he is willing to listen to us. The fact that he is willing to take our feeble attempts at praise of him, the fact that he is willing to hear our prayers, is a beautiful and wonderful thing that we do nothing but take advantage of. He is the only one who deserves our praise. This God that we get to talk to is the one who spoke everything you are and everything you love into existence. This God holds the entire universe in his hands and sustains it with his power. This God is the one true king the rightful ruler of all who exists and the only being that is worthy of all of our praise. This is the same God that looked on you with love and decided to send his only son to die for you. As a result, and this is kind of the final idea, worship requires abandon. When Mary anointed Jesus, she did so out of just complete and total Abandoned. It was a radical act that required her giving up caring about what anyone else thought of her. I don't think our minds can wrap around today the boldness that it even took uh, to be Mary in this situation. Like Jesus has his like 12, you know, disciples, they're all sitting with him at the table. They belong there. They are studying after him. They are following him. He has named them as, like, here's my 12 guys. She walks up confidently in front of all of them and performs this just beautiful act of love. Worship requires abandon. I was thinking about this uh, as we, like, started Lent this week. Uh, We're calling our Lent season Bright Sadness. Many of you have started, like, fasting from things uh, as a part of this season. I believe that even the act of Lent and observing Lent is an act of worship, all right? So this is not, like, some sort of, like, crash diet or a way to fix bad habits for you. It's actually, like, an act of worship worship and it's an act that requires full and complete abandon you're literally abandoning something right like you're giving up social media you're giving up caffeine you're giving up whatever uh, if you have thought that this like uh, servant, sermon was actually sort of like me on half speed, this is me without caffeine, all right? I speak like a normal pace of a normal human being. You might want to do the podcast later and listen at 1.25 speed or something, and it will feel more natural, but this is me without it, right? Like it's giving up something when you're fasting. That's what you're doing. You're abandoning something. But even more than that, as an act of worship, you are looking at Jesus, and every single time that you think to yourself, man, I really wish I had that thing. I really wish I could turn to that thing that comforts me. I really wish I could have that thing that brings me a temporary moment of joy that I've given up for Lent. Every single time that you're doing that, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, hey, you matter more to me than the rest of this stuff. Like, you are so much more important to me than caffeine and social media and YouTube and whatever it is that you're giving up. That is the type of abandon that accompanies true worship the refusal to think of self and to give a wholehearted focus and acknowledgement to God. May we have such abandon. May our worship be defined by such a rejection of the things of this earth. May we like Mary, come to Jesus, bringing the greatest gifts that we have, bringing everything that we have to the table. May we come up to him, sit at his feet, and worship him. May we anoint him for the king that he is. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard, Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.